0: At verses 5 to 9 this morning, the Apostle Paul writes, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, he changes titles there. It's the same office as we'll see. An overseer is God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray. Father of Grace, we thank you for this passage. There are passages in Scripture that address needs that we don't necessarily feel, but needs nonetheless. This is one of those texts. And we pray, Lord, that you would turn our eyes upon Jesus this morning, even as we consider this passage on elders. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, faith to obey, to comply, to conform corporately to what the word of God has to say about church order. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of a recent article written by Ed Stetzer, caught my attention a few days ago. It caught my attention while at the same time grieving me. The title of the article was, My Pastor is on the Ashley Madison List. Of course, the Ashley Madison website is the adultery website. Life is short, commit adultery is their slogan. The article was intended to counsel churches, council members of churches whose pastors and spiritual leaders were exposed for having been on that website. Stetzer estimates that some 400 pastors and deacons have had to resign as a result of having their names on that list. Now, this was an important article. It was a well-written article. Uh, But it's an article that should have never had to have been written. That's the issue. God's standards for leadership are extraordinarily high. That goes unsaid. Uh, But one that many professing evangelical churches tend to not heed. There's... No trend in the church today, in fact, that I think is more damaging to the church and to the reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ than failing to vet spiritual leaders and failing to properly discipline and even disqualify spiritual leaders who have committed gross moral sins. In fact, the Holy Spirit knows that leadership in the church is so fundamental and so crucial that he devotes four passages to its qualifications. Acts chapter 20, starting in verses 28 to 38. 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. And then you have the qualifications of a deacon, 8 to 13, following that. And then you have 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. And then our present passage, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. As Paul begins his letter, he begins immediately addressing the issues of elders, spiritual leadership, and the qualifications of these elders. Notice with me in verse 5, he writes, This is why, Titus, I left you in Crete. So Paul had been in Crete with Titus, and then he dropped him off there. He said, So that you might put what remained into order... And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so verse five tells us there are two reasons that Paul left Titus in Crete. First of all, that he might put what remained into order. Now that put into order, that verb there, is this is the verb where we get the word orthodentist uh, or orthopraxy uh, or ortho. Uh, doxy, or orthopedic. It means to set something straight. Something that was not previously straight. Titus was charged with setting something straight in Crete. And in particular, he is to set uh, straight doctrine and duty. You can see, for instance, in chapter 2, verse 1, as for you teach what accords with sound doctrine. He was to set the doctrine that was obviously not straight in Crete into order. And then the duty itself that flows out of the doctrine. He speaks, for instance, in verse 7, show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. Good works is a very crucial uh, statement throughout the book of Titus. And so the first reason he leaves Titus there in Crete is to set in order what remains. The second reason he leaves him in Crete is to appoint elders in every town. Every town had a church. And Titus was to appoint elders in every church, in every town. In fact, he would accomplish the first reason with the second reason. The way he's going to set in order what remains is by appointing elders. And it would be through the elders that he would do that. We see that clearly you'll look in verse 10, that connecting word for. So you're appointing elders for there are many who are insubordinate. Empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. Who's going to silence them? It's the elders. It's the elders that they appoint in the churches. Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And so as they appoint the elders, the elders would accomplish the setting in order what remains. Now, we saw last week, if you were here on Sunday night with us, in our study of Exodus, that one of the abiding principles of the law of God is that um, when God redeems a slave out of mercy and grace and justice... um, He calls, he demands the payment of a gift to be given to that slave. For instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 15. In chapter 15, he says, If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. But notice verse 13, and when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. And so a slave who was redeemed, who was set free from enslavement, was giving gifts as, a, as a, a token of grace and mercy and even justice to get that slave on his or her feet. And we see that principle played throughout the Old Testament. For instance, in Ezra, when God's people are redeemed out of Babylon, God stirs the heart of a pagan king named Cyrus. And so not only does he allow the Jews to go back to their homeland, he gives them gifts as they go back in the building, rebuilding of their temple. And then if you notice in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is reflecting on that reality. And he says in Ephesians 4, verse uh, 8, therefore it says, when he, that is Christ, ascended on high, he led a host of captives. What is he saying there? When Jesus was raised from the grave, and when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, he redeemed a people. Now how does he redeem a people? Naturally, we are born into this world as slaves to sin. The wages of sin is death. And we must pay the wage. The wage must be paid because God is just and righteous and holy. God is good. And good judges penalize crimes against the system. Well, what God in His grace has done, in His wisdom, He has provided a way where He can judge the sin and save the sinner. He sent His Son into the slave market and redeemed us By His blood, He paid the sin debt we owe. That is death. And when He was raised, Jesus Himself was redeemed from that sin market. And He redeems those who trust Him and believe in Him. We are redeemed in Christ. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. But notice, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. See, that's the principle we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 15. When a slave is redeemed, he or she is given gifts. And in the same way, Jesus redeems us through His resurrection and His ascension, and He gives gifts to men. Paul adds, he says, in saying He ascended, what does it mean? But that He also descended in the lower regions, the earth. He who descended, that's speaking of His incarnation, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that He might fill all things. Now what does that mean He's filling all things? When He ascends to the right hand of the Father, He sends the Spirit. And the Spirit is going to um, work redemption in the hearts of those who are enslaved to sin. And Christ's presence is going to gradually fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now, it comes through the Great Commission. That's why we do the Great Commission as a church. But notice, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I say all that to say this. One of the gifts that God has given a redeemed people is the gift of the office of elder. I personally am not your gift. It's the office that's your gift. Now my spiritual gifts are like your spiritual gifts. They are gifts to the body to build up the body of Christ. But God has given the office of elder, pastor, teacher to the church as a gift to people who were formerly enslaved to sin but have now been redeemed. And we can see that principle all the way going back to Deuteronomy chapter 15. And with this in mind, elder, if I could set you straight on this, if you don't understand this, it's important to understand this, is the same office as pastor. Alright? So when we talk about the word elder, we're not talking about something distinct from the office of pastor. And if you'll notice in verse 7, he speaks of overseer. In some translations, like the King James Version, overseer is translated bishop. But because that has loaded language uh, in church history, uh, we translate that overseer in our modern English Bibles. Uh, All three terms, different Greek terms, speak to the same office. They're used uh, in distinct ways to speak something of the nature of the office. Not one term, would cover it. And so three terms are necessary in order to fully understand the role of this office. Now I want to make my argument. If you look over with me in 1 Peter chapter 5. In 1 Peter chapter 5, the Apostle Peter is writing to the church and he says, I exhort the elders among you. Now who are the elders? It's not just the old people. Those who have who've been called to the office. Those who have been appointed, to use Paul's language. And he says, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, he says to the elders, shepherd, the flock of God. You may have a footnote in your Bible there. That word shepherd is the verb form of the word pastor so you could translate this to the elders pastor the flock of god that is among you notice exercising oversight again that verb is the verb form of oversee overseer so you could translate this to the elders pastor the flock of god overseeing them okay and that's so there in that passage you see all three terms are used of the same people. And then if you look in chapter Acts, or Acts chapter 20, uh, it should be on the board, we see the same thing. Paul is speaking to the elders in Ephesus. He has spent some three years with them and he's departing. And he says in verse 17, uh, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And so again... Elders are there and present with Paul. Notice verse 28. He's speaking to the elders. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So you see there that elders and overseers is used interchangeably. And then he says to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That verb there, to care, is the word for shepherd or pastor. So again, two different passages, two different writers. Peter in the first passage and Luke in this passage see that the elder, the pastor, and the overseer is one and the same office. And not only that, every time the word elder is used, unless it's speaking of a particular individual... It's used in the plural. Every time. There's no exception. For instance, in Acts chapter 11, you have there the disciples are gathering relief for the church in Jerusalem. And it says in 29, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Notice, and they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, as an interesting note here, this is the first time Christian elders is used in the book of Acts. It's in Acts chapter 11, verse 30. And then if you look over in chapter 14 of Acts, in verse 23, notice here in verse 23 it says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord. So you see there in the gospel or in the book of Acts where the Spirit of God is at work, okay? Where the gospel is taking root and increasing and the disciples are increasing. They're appointing elders in every church. And so every time we we see in the New Testament this idea of elders, we see that it's plural and it's used interchangeably with the term pastor, Are with the term overseer. And if you'll remember back in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy 5 verse 17. Paul makes a distinction with two kinds of elders. He says, let the elders who rule well. Be considered worthy of double honor. Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so there... There seems to be a distinction made between teaching elders and general elders. Now, every elder must be able to teach. We recognize that uh, from Titus 1.9 or even 1 Timothy 3 verse 2. But some labor as preachers, okay? Some have the vocational call to do full-time um, ministry. Uh, these we would call the full-time staff since they do the majority of the public preaching. They're considered the teaching elders. But then there are lay elders. There are those who have jobs out in the community. They may be businessmen or coaches, uh, bus drivers, truck drivers, uh, mailmen, firemen, policemen, uh, pilots, whatever it may be. They're to be able to teach as well, but that's not their primary vocation. Okay? Okay. Most will have uh, full-time jobs outside the church. And yet, one crucial aspect of of their lives is by serving the church as elders. Okay? And so those are things we have to consider as a church. Does our church government conform with what the New Testament expectations are when it comes to the elder? And now, as with 1 Timothy 3... Uh, we see that Paul will clearly emphasize that not just any man is qualified for this office. We see first and foremost, the elder must be above reproach, above reproach. Notice in verse six, if anyone is above reproach. Now if you'll remember in First Timothy three we looked at the same, list. It's not identical because it's not an exhaustive list. But in 1 Timothy 3, above approach was the beginning characteristic, and we see it here as well. It's kind of like an umbrella term. Uh, in the notes on the screen, I accidentally typed in above approach. That would not be uh, what Paul is calling. In other words, the elder must be approachable, all right? But he must be above reproach. Now, what does it mean to be above reproach? 1 Timothy 3 verse 2 says the man must be above reproach, but actually he uses a different Greek term there. But they're synonymous, okay? And and essentially what it means to be above reproach is that he has an untarnished reputation. Okay, he's blameless. It doesn't mean he's flawless, Or there's not a human being on the planet that would qualify. It's a man who lives a repentant life. Okay? It's a man um, who lives a blameless life. He recognizes, the church recognizes, that the world is too easily um, quick to criticize Christians, and they are looking for reasons to criticize and judge Christians. And and they realize, this church realizes, that the the Christian leader has to lead by example. And so being above reproach is non-negotiable. In other words, this man is the same no matter what company he keeps. He's the same no matter what company he keeps or if he is alone when no one is watching. He is a man of repentance. And This week I was listening to a podcast with Skip Bayless and Stephen A. Smith, uh, who, who have a, an ESPN show. And they were talking about this football coach in the NFL who has a filthy mouth. There's several of those, by the way, in the NFL and in college. But they were talking about this man's mouth, but they they were laughing about the fact that his mother just found out that he has a filthy mouth. And she rebuked him. And here's what Stephen A. Smith said. He said, any man that's decent obviously changes when he's around his mama. So you don't talk a certain way when you're around your mama. And he said, this is not Brian speaking, this is Stephen A. Smith speaking, we all know that I cuss. I'm 47 years old and my mama has heard me cuss one time in my life. And the only time she heard me cuss, she was standing behind me and I didn't know it. But away from mama you're going to do certain things. That's what he said. Now, being above reproach is, is much greater than just cussing here. But We're just talking about one particular test case here. Note, away from mama, you're going to do certain things. And earlier he said, any man that's decent obviously changes when he's around his mama. And as I heard him say that, I said, Stephen A. Smith, is not qualified to be an elder. He's not. A Man doesn't have to change around his mama if he's above reproach. He doesn't have to change when he's a, around his wife or children or his brothers and sisters in the church if he's above reproach. When he's watching, looking at the internet, He doesn't have to close his computer or exit out when someone walks into the room if he's above reproach. If he's interacting with the opposite sex and his wife walks in on that conversation, he doesn't have to change if he's above reproach. Above reproach doesn't mean perfect. It remains a man who's living in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The man who's above reproach is, to use Paul's language, a servant of God. A man who's above reproach is one who's been captured by the gospel. He recognizes his sins have been forgiven. His many sins have been forgiven at an infinite cost the blood, the life of the Son of God. And he can't get over that. He cannot get over the reality of the price that was paid, that he might have his sins forgiven, that he might have eternal life. He recognizes as well that this Son of God has been raised from the grave, enabling him to overcome his sins. This man is above reproach. And now he's going to lay out the details of what this looks like. He's above reproach, generally speaking. And he says, he's also above reproach in his home. Notice, if anyone is above reproach, and the husband of one wife. Now, it's interesting that on both lists that Paul gives us, 1 Timothy 3, and in Titus chapter 1, he says, first of all, the man is above reproach, and secondly, he's the husband of one wife. These lists are not identical. And yet on both lists, the first two things he says, he's above reproach, and he's the husband of one wife. Now, for time's sake, I do believe it's ideal that a man be married, But I don't believe singleness disqualifies a man. He is speaking here of a person's character. Okay? And so, if he's married, he's not an adulterer. He doesn't view porn. Ever. Ever. He doesn't view porn. Porn disqualifies you. He's not a flirt. Okay? And if he's single, he doesn't live a private life of perversity. This man is sexually pure. He's the husband of one wife. And when the church gets this wrong, devastation. All you have to do is go online and just punch in the internet, church scandals. You could spend the next five years reading on the articles that are online. Online. And virtually all of them have to do with either financial indiscretion or sexual indiscretion. In fact, in June, there was a very well-known pastor. I won't give his name. It's not necessary. But he's a, he has a national presence. He's written many books. And he was exposed for having an affair. And what astounded me was his response There was some apology, but essentially what he said was his affair was a reaction to his wife's affair. That doesn't sound like repentance to me. Where you throw your wife under the bus even as you are exposed for your own adultery. Well, in August, he filed for divorce. And get this two weeks after filing for divorce he's already an associate pastor at another church. God help us. God help us on that. Paul is giving us non-negotiables. Now you pray. Pray for the church spiritual leaders of churches because the enemy is waging warfare on that front for sure. But it's a non-negotiable man is the husband of one wife, but notice as well, he has children who believe. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, at face value, this may seem that a father's responsibility, or you could say he is responsible that a a son or daughter, be saved. But guess what? Parents don't do the saving. I don't care if you have family devotions every day of their childhood and pray over them every day of their childhood. You cannot save your children. There's only one Savior. Jesus Christ is the only Savior. But this word believe, I, I think it's an unfortunate translation. The word means pistos, or the Greek word is pistos, and can also be translated faithful. In fact, uh, typically in the New Testament, that word is translated faithful. For instance, God is pistos. He is faithful. Jesus Christ is faithful. And in fact, in verse 9, we see that the word of God, see, trustworthy word. That word trustworthy is the same word. It's faithful are trustworthy. So I do not believe he is saying here that a child has to be saved in order for the pastor to be qualified, the elder to be qualified. I mean, can you imagine the disruption that would cause? The pressure pastors would have to baptize their kids by the time they were three years old. Because the moment they got uh, older and they've not been baptized, they've lost their ministry. I don't think that's what he's referring to here. In fact, in 1 Timothy 3, he says that the pastor, the overseer, elder, must manage his home well. And you see there that in verse 4, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So in 1 Timothy 3, the children must be submissive. What does that mean? Submissive to his leadership. So, I don't think he's referring here to a child must be converted in order for the pastor to be or elder to be qualified as an elder. I think what he's saying is the children must be under the authority of the father. These children are not running roughshod, uh, they're not anti authority. There's a healthy and holy fear of their dad. A loving fear. I think that's what he's saying there. Because notice in the second part of that... He's referring to their behavior. Not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. That word debauchery was used elsewhere by Paul of drunkenness. Uh, he's not a carouser. And he's not open to the charge of insubordination. And so if, a, if an elder has a child as he gets older... Now, we're talking about children in the home. The Greek word is technon. It's referring to children in the home. You can't control a 30-year-old, okay? But children who are under your authority those first 18 years, if that child is insubordinate, I would suggest that that pastor not necessarily resign, but take a sabbatical and go win his son, go win his daughter, because the first ministry of, a, of an elder is his home. In fact, I have an African friend, a pastor I met in Ghana on one of my mission trips. He, even to this day, when he asks me, when we get on the phone, he'll say, how is the First Baptist Church doing? He's not referring to Fisherville. He's referring to Payneville. How is the family doing? That is your first ministry. And so, this man is above reproach. He's above reproach in the home or in in his family. He's also above reproach in the church. Look with me in verse 7. For an overseer, isn't that interesting? Again, he's speaking here of elders and now he changes terms. Why would he do that? Because all three terms, elder, overseer, and pastor speak to something of the reality of the office. Okay, An elder speaks to spiritual maturity. An overseer, that speaks to something of his responsibility. He oversees. In fact, the Greek word, episkopos. Epi meaning to the word over, and skopos means to scope. He scopes over. It is a high responsibility. You don't know how many times I've gone to bed thinking of burdens in the church and burdens of people and marriages in our church. That is the responsibility of the overseer. He oversees. And he says, an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He repeats himself. Just in case you missed it the first time, Titus. Just in case you missed it, church at Crete. Just in case you missed it, Fisherville Baptist and The American church, an overseer, must be above reproach. And he says, as God's steward. Isn't that interesting? We are not owners. I don't own this church. I don't run this church. I'm a steward of this church. I have a boundary set for me, for which I will be held accountable. I'm just a manager. I'm a steward. That's what we are. We do not have self-autonomy to lead the way we desire to lead. We are stewards of the grace of God. And he says, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Why this emphasis on above reproach? Because remember, one of the roles of an elder pastor is to be an example. If you look in chapter 2, verse 7... He says to Titus, he says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In other words, when Paul is describing the elder, he's not describing an a, a Navy SEAL or special forces Christian. He is describing a Christian. An elder is just an example, a model of what a Christian is. Which tells us, it's not just the elder are the pastor who's called to be above reproach. If you're a professing Christian, you are called to be above reproach. And so even as we read this text, remember the grid in 2 Timothy 3. This text is intended to teach you, to rebuke you, to correct you, and to train you in righteousness. If you do not heed what Paul is saying, the apostle, it will not end well for you you will not flourish as a human being, as the image of God. And so, we must be above reproach because we are examples to you of what the blameless Christian life looks like. He says, notice as well, he must be above reproach and not arrogant. That means not self-willed, not overbearing. This is the type of person who does not listen to criticism, who does not listen to advice. He says, not quick-tempered. Now, why do you think a pastor cannot be quick-tempered? Well, you don't even have to have a a big imagination to figure that one out. If you're quick-tempered, the pastorate will reveal it. Alright? Notice as well, he says, not a drunkard. Now, I am personally a teetotaler, Because I have two grandfathers in the grave because of alcohol. I have one who died very early because of alcohol abuse. And I have another who committed suicide in a drunken stupor when my dad was seven years old. I'm not personally one who touches the stuff. You're playing with fire. I do believe we're being stricter than the scriptures allow to say, Abstinence from alcohol is the only course. But we do know that drunkenness is a sin. And if you are an unrepentant drunkard, the Bible says you will go to hell. First Corinthians chapter 6. In fact, drunkenness is a reason for church discipline. First Corinthians 5. And so what does it mean to be drunk? I mean, that's a subjective thought. I've never met a drunk who said he was drunk. I don't think you probably have either if you have drunk enough to even feel it and be under its influence in any way, in my estimation, you've gone too far. You've gone too far. What you were saying is, Jesus is not enough. I've got to get a fix. And the Bible says that we're called to take dominion as Christians. That means dominion over the vine as well. And so obviously it was a case here in, in Crete that there were spiritual leaders Who were over drinking. He says that these men must not be uh, drunkards. He says as well, not violent. Again, elders are called to handle emotionally charged conflicts. It is a common theme for me. Virtually every week, I'm in a situation that's emotionally charged. He cannot be a violent person. If he is prone to violence, there's going to be a fight breakout at least once a week. Alright? He's not greedy for gain. The implication here, there are pastors who go into the ministry, they handle money, which is the most dangerous thing and, uh, that, that, a, that a pastor can do. I don't touch money, I don't see the giving records, I have never seen a check written by a member of this church. I don't touch it. Not because I believe I would be tempted, because I don't want to be falsely accused. But this man who is greedy, uh, he is communicating, again, that godliness with contentment is not great gain. And Paul says, that's exactly what godliness contentment is. It is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we will bring nothing out of this world. With having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. This man is not greedy for gain. He is hospitable. Again, that is found in the larger context of agape love. He's hospitable. Of course, it was crucial in that day when they didn't have hotels like we know them. And so pastors and elders would would have travelers stay in their home. But this man is hospitable. By the way, this is used elsewhere to refer to the Christian in general. Again, the Christian, the elder is just the model of what the Christian is called to be. He's a lover of good. This is loving virtue. Okay? It's loving the things God loves and hating the things God hates. You know what astounds me? And this is epidemic, even in the church. It astounds me professing Christians who go on Facebook. Now this is just an application. This is, I don't want to sound legalistic here. But it's amazing to me, the Christians who go on Facebook and post things that Jesus died for. They find enjoyment and humor in things for which Jesus died. You will see Christians who like things there's no way Jesus liked or likes. Okay? This man is a lover of good because the Christian, the fruit of the Christian life is one who loves good. He is self-controlled. He controls his drives. He has dominion in his life. There is no private part of his life that lacks self-control. Notice as well, he is upright. He's righteous. That does not mean he earned his righteousness. The Reformation took place for this reason. In the Reformation, there were those who taught that God accepts you as you become righteous. And so God infuses grace and righteousness in you. You cooperate with God by your good works. And gradually, you become acceptable to God. And ultimately, most people don't reach that perfect state, and so they go to purgatory until they are purged from their sins. And in the Reformation, men like Martin Luther recognized no one reaches perfect righteousness Our righteousness is as filthy rags. It is not by our works that we are made acceptable in the eyes of God. It is all of grace through the work of Jesus Christ. In other words, if I'm going to stand before God, it's not because of my righteousness. It's because of the righteousness of another. It's called imputed righteousness. Jesus Christ, perfect righteousness, is imputed to me when I believe. So that now, even though I'm still a sinner... God accepts me as righteous in His sight because of the righteousness of Jesus. But one of the evidences that I have that alien righteousness is now there is a growing righteous reality being worked in my life. I now increasingly love those things God loves. And I now increasingly hate those things God hates. I am becoming righteous. Now, becoming righteousness is not the ground of my salvation. Jesus' righteousness is. But it's the fruit of my salvation. And that's what Paul means here when he says this man is just. It's the word for righteous. He's also holy. He's pure. He's committed to piety and godliness and If you would please pray for our young people. If you would please pray for our youth and our children. They are being raised in a culture that scoffs at holiness. God help us. Pray that these young boys here will have... They will stay pure and holy. Now we recognize our holiness is in Jesus. That comes through conversion but they will commit themselves to holiness. Pray for these young girls that there will actually be guys out there for them to marry that are not enslaved to porn. By the way, if we're going to lead them in that way, we must go that way, right? And that's why the elders have to be holy because the elders are the examples to the flock. These men are committed to holiness and notice the last word, disciplined discipline. By the way, that word is the last word in the fruit of the Spirit. It's translated there, self-controlled. This is a man who is uh, rigorous in spiritual habits. He's rigorous in spiritual disciplines. It's a part of his DNA. It's not a New Year's resolution where I'm going to read through the Bible. That's great. This is a part of his DNA. He doesn't have to make a New Year's resolution. It's like breathing. This man recognizes he needs the grace of God to come to bear every day of his life. And one of the real means of that grace is an open Bible and a praying knee. He's disciplined. This man is above reproach in the home. He's above reproach in the family. And finally, he's Above approach in biblical stewardship. Notice verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So that he may be able to instruct. Give instruction and sound doctrine. And also to rebuke those who contradict it. By the way, this is what distinguishes an elder from a deacon. Those are the two offices of a church. A deacon leads by serving. An elder serves by leading. The distinction between... An elder and a deacon is that the elder must be able to teach. A deacon doesn't have that calling. Now, deacon is not minor leagues and elders major leagues. That's not how it works. You don't work yourself from being a deacon to an elder. Okay? It's two different callings. Some of the most spiritually mature people in a church are called to be deacons. And it's not because they're inferior to elders are less spiritually mature. It's two different callings. And one of the reasons it's important in my estimation to have a plurality of elders is nature abhors a vacuum. When you don't have a plurality of elders, the deacons will serve that role. And here's the problem with that. You have deacons who are serving in a role for which they're not called. And then you don't have deacons. So that's a very important distinction you have to think about churches need deacons and they need elders it's two different callings and both deacons and elders should have the same spiritual maturity it has nothing to do with maturity it has to do with calling but notice these elders must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine And, and essentially there's two callings here and we'll call it a day to use John Stott, he has to have two voices. He has to have one voice for the sheep, and he has to have one voice for the wolves. Okay? And the Word of God provides that voice. For the sheep, he teaches, he exhorts in sound doctrine. For the wolves, he rebukes, he exposes. And so we've seen today the elders must be above reproach. He must be above reproach in his home. He must be above reproach in the church. He must be above reproach in sound doctrine. Okay? Let me conclude with two thoughts. You know, there's some things that are important that we don't really feel. Every day I begin with Aaron's green drink mix. I throw it in some water. It's the nastiest stuff on the planet. I've been doing it for two years. Um, I just wrote down some of the things it has. Alfalfa, beetroot, dandelion leaf, ginkgo, kelp, spinach, and the list continues. I don't wake up in the morning feeling the need for these things. But I need them. And you need them too if you had any beetroot this morning. This is a text for all of us, not because we feel the need. You didn't wake up this morning and go, what I need from Brian today is a sermon on elders. You didn't feel that. You had a lot of other issues on your mind, but that wasn't one of them. But some of the most important things on the planet aren't felt. Okay? And this is one of those texts. And it's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, you need spiritual leadership. You need it. That's why if you had to choose between Sunday school and corporate worship, corporate worship 100% of the time. Sunday school is important. But you need spiritual leadership with the people of God. You need to be under preaching. Not because I'm the preacher. It's the way God designed it. You need examples. You need examples of what it means to be above reproach. Because outside in your world, anything but above reproach. Okay? If you're not above reproach, in fact, you're, you are destroying your capacity to glorify God in your life and you're destroying your capacity to have exceeding joy and, and your capacity to flourish as a human being. And if you're not a believer today... I would suggest you needed this text as well. I know you don't feel the need for elders. In fact, um, that has not perhaps even crossed your mind. But have you ever thought about the fact that God loves you so much that He gave the church elders to do the work of evangelism so that you could come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? And so the office of elder is actually an expression of God's love for you. Jesus Christ came to save people who aren't above reproach. Okay? That's why he gave the church elders. He came to save people who are not above reproach. In fact, He does not save people who are above reproach. He only saves those who aren't above reproach. Alright? And here's how He did it. He sent His Son, not to be merely above reproach. He sent His Son to be without blemish. Okay? Why? So that you could be without blemish in His sight. So that all those sins you've ever committed could be covered by His perfect holiness and righteousness. And then this one who was without blemish, you know what He did? He took a cross and He was crushed for every sin of people who are anything but above reproach. People like us. And then to know that God received the payment, He raised Him from the grave. And so I want to end our first service in here today by making an appeal to those who've never trusted Christ. The fact that God has given the church elders is evidence that He's pursuing you. He loves you. He loves you to the point of death. And there's no sin you've ever committed that is beyond Salvation and forgiveness. None. Period. If it was, I wouldn't be here. Jesus died for those sins. He was raised from the grave. And if you'll repent today and trust in Him, flee to Christ, you will become a child of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You for Your mercy and grace. We thank You for the Messiah. We thank You that He, by His work, has given the church gift in elders, to nourish your people, to save sinners. We pray you would do that today. We pray you would save and edify and build up and glorify your name in your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand and as we sing.